This morning, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verses 10 through 12 in just a moment. You know, the, the human attention span is quite um, fragile. It's easy to get distracted from so many things. Uh, advertisers and uh, big business, they spend millions of dollars every year just to get 30 seconds of your attention during the Super Bowl. And we see that kind of, of money behind advertising. We see it everywhere we go um, because we're so easily distracted. It's so easy uh, to get our attention on this thing and then the next. There's one subject that we're going to see this morning that has captured the attention of prophets who lived thousands of years ago. Uh, captured the attention of all gospel preachers since then. Has captured the attention of the Holy Spirit himself and captured the attention of angels who long to look into these things. And that one subject is our salvation. As we're going to see this morning, even the prophets were fascinated by it. They were consumed by it. Even the angels longed to look into our glorious salvation. So this morning, we're going to search the scriptures and see our salvation. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. If you found your place in God's word, whether in body or in spirit, would you stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your everlasting, permanent word. Help us this morning to just get a glimpse of the glory of the salvation that you have provided for us. Help us to understand the wonders of it and to be so moved by it that we would live for you each day. We pray for all who are here who do not know you, that they would uh, hear your spirit beckoning them this morning. We pray you would help us to set aside all distractions, comfort us where we need comfort, uh, convict us where we need conviction, and in all things we pray that you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we're continuing in our study of the book of 1 Peter, we've made it all the way to verse 10. Uh, we will eventually pick up the speed just a little bit, but verses 10 through 12 actually go with what we saw last Sunday. Uh, verses 1 and 2 are the, are the greeting. We looked at that our first week. And then verses 3 through 12 actually form a, a lengthy introduction to the letter. And in that, Peter is setting the stage for everything else that he's going to tell us. He's going to work through the rest of this book, cycling back through uh, three sections, telling us who we are in Christ and how that should make us live differently, even in the midst of the suffering that we find ourselves in. But here in this introduction, verses uh, 3 through 12, we saw part of that last week. We saw that Peter begins in praise, praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us this great salvation out of his own mercy. But then Peter reminds us that even in this life, we do have trials. Uh, they are temporary. They may not feel temporary always, but they are temporary in the grand light of eternity. And that Christ will sustain us through the, the power of his resurrection. And that our, uh, the testing of our faith, the testing of our living hope, even results in devotion to Christ through that. And then it's as if in verses 10 through 12, Peter kind of gets distracted. He goes off on a bit of a tangent 
because he's so overwhelmed with the glory of our salvation, he just can't help but talk about it for just a moment. And so he began saying concerning this salvation. So he reminds us that he's still on the same flow of thought, but he's going to camp out here for a minute. He's going to talk about this salvation. And he says, look, here's what you need to know about this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. He begins by tying this idea of salvation. He starts with the prophets. Well, who are these prophets that he's referring to? You may begin to think of Isaiah through Malachi, those books in the Old Testament that we identify as the major prophets and the minor prophets. And we know that uh, they are prophets of God and their words are recorded in Scripture. But you know, as you've uh, read through the Bible, you see that even in the narrative portions of Scripture, there are other prophets in the Old Testament that didn't necessarily have an entire book that they left for us, but we learn about them. So from Moses to Malachi, we have prophets in the Old Testament, and Peter is pointing back to those prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours. Some people think that grace is just a New Testament concept, that the God of the Old Testament is some angry uh, ogre who's just judgmental and always breathing fire and brimstone. And that when you come to the New Testament, you get a, a God 2.0, a God who is kinder and nicer and more loving and more gentle. And uh, some people want to just camp out on Jesus in the New Testament and say, well, Jesus is, is love and mercy. But the God of the Old Testament, no, he's, he's angry and, and mean all the time. He's not happy about stuff. But actually, when someone says this, it helps us see that they haven't fully understood who God is or they haven't understood the scriptures because the Bible is very clear that God is a God of grace from beginning to end. Anyone that thinks that Jesus is only love and mercy shows you that they haven't actually listened to what Jesus had to say because Jesus actually spent a great deal of time talking about the punishment that was to come for all who reject him. They clearly haven't paid attention to the end of the book when he returns in Revelation 19 to make all things new and to put all things under his feet. And those who would say that the God of the Old Testament actually is not a God of grace have missed out on a key teaching in the Old Testament. Need I remind you that the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When Joseph, the great patriarch, the son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when Joseph himself was exiled in Egypt, when his brother Benjamin came up, Joseph spoke a blessing to Benjamin saying, May God be gracious to you, my son. When Moses was on the mountain with God and God revealed to Moses he was going to show him a glimpse of his glory, here's what God said to him in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Jonah understood that God is a God of grace. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah says as much. He tells God, he says, I know that if I go to Nineveh and I preach a message of repentance, some of them might actually repent. And you, God, being gracious, will actually forgive them. Jonah says this in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is is the grace of our God from beginning to end, Old Testament and new. So these prophets who are prophesying about our salvation, they're prophesying about the grace of God. But what else do we see them doing here in verse 10? It says that they are searching and they are inquiring carefully. 
They're searching and inquiring carefully. You take these two words together and it gives us the the picture of a fervent activity. It's not merely academic study. The angels want to, excuse me, the prophets are wanting to understand all of this. They want to study in the experiential sense, not just the theological or academic sense. It's not just a passive search. They are actively searching the scriptures to understand more about the salvation. They want to know. They want to understand. So they search. They inquire. In the same way that a person might search and inquire for a missing person. Or in the same way that someone might search and inquire after a ransom. You don't do that half-heartedly. You do that wholeheartedly. And that's how the prophets are searching and inquiring. They want to understand these things that God has given them to say. We get a perfect example of this in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel not only sought to understand what God had given him, Daniel also sought to understand what the other prophets had said. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, Daniel says, When I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel wanted to understand, Lord, you've given me this vision, but I don't exactly understand. I want to know what you're trying to tell me. But then in chapter 9, we see that Daniel also is studying the prophecies of others. He studies the prophecy of Jeremiah so that he might understand how long they were going to be in captivity in Babylon. So the prophets search. They inquire carefully. But what exactly do they want to know? Well, they want to know, uh, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They want to know who is this? Who is the subject of all of this prophecy? Who is going to come and fulfill these things? And what time will he come? What kind of time will it be? You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, a son had been promised. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and God came to them and he began pronouncing judgments upon Adam, upon Eve, and upon the serpent, upon Satan, who had deceived them. Upon uh, God giving that judgment to Satan, here's what God said. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, that is Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God announces that there will come someone an offspring of Eve who will come and crush the head of the serpent. One who will put an end to all evil, to all sin, who will defeat all of God's enemies. And so from that day forward, from Genesis chapter 3, everyone is looking, who will this child be? Who is the subject of this prophecy? Who will come and do this thing? So you get to Genesis chapter 4. And it tells us that Adam and Eve knew one another and they conceive and Eve gives birth to a son named Cain. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve thinks perhaps this is the one. God said there was going to be an offspring. Here's my offspring. Perhaps he will be the one who will crush the serpent. We quickly see that Cain is not the promised seed. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, you see child after child is born, son after son falls short. None of them are the promised one. You get to uh, the reign of King David and things are looking really good in Israel. If you've been uh, following along with us in our Bible Bible narrative reading plan, you have seen the reign of King David. And you understand that David failed in many ways, but he also repented greatly. He was a man after God's own heart. And as good as King David was, King David was not the promised seed. 
But God did make a promise with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what God said to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God is making a promise with David that an offspring will come from David, and God continues saying, My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your throne will be established forever. So now we're paying attention. We're looking, all right, it's going to be somebody from the line of David. And who is the first one to come up after King David, the first one to try and seize that throne? Absalom. And we know Absalom is not the promised seed. And then you look at Solomon and you think, well, Solomon, he's doing a little bit better. Perhaps Solomon will be the promised one, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who will restore all things to Israel. But it's not Solomon and it's not his son. And it's not any of those that come after him. And so the prophets keep studying. They keep searching. They keep inquiring. They want to understand who will be this promised seed. Who will be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent of God. The last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had the same question. We see that John the Baptist thought he had it figured out. He saw Jesus coming one day and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But like so many of us, John the Baptist had hard times. He was persecuted. He was put in jail and he had moments of doubt. And so John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus. Matthew chapter 11 tells us that when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist typifying all of the great Old Testament prophets, was searching and inquiring, wanting to see who is the subject of these prophecies, who will be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who will come and rescue Israel. But notice how they learned these things about the Messiah. What does it say in verse 11? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. The Holy Spirit working in them is giving them this revelation. He is revealing it. It's not an idea that the prophets came up with on their own. God himself, through his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is indicating these things. He's revealing these things. Peter reminds us in his second letter of how the Holy Spirit accomplishes his revealing of prophecy. Write down 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Peter says this in his second letter, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in these prophets, he is moving them along and the Spirit himself is predicting. He is prophesying, witnessing beforehand two things, the sufferings of Christ and the glories, the subsequent glories of Christ. Don't miss this. Why is Peter telling them all of this? He's writing to Christians who are suffering, who are enduring various trials in this life. And he doesn't tell them to turn inwardly and to be consumed with their own situation. He doesn't tell them to look outwardly and just make the best of it in the world around them. He tells them to look upwardly to the God who has saved them. The God who makes all of the difference. Peter's antidote for suffering 
is to look to Christ, the one who has saved us. How? By his sufferings and his glories. His sufferings and his glories. We don't often like to think of the suffering aspect. We understand that Peter is going to tell us more about this in this letter, but we are ready to get to glory. That's how the disciples were. They wanted to bypass the suffering in order to get to the glory. Do you remember what Jesus said to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus? We saw this a while back. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The suffering and the subsequent glory. So where are some of the places that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ? We can't look at all of them, as you can imagine. But I want to point out just a few of them to you. In Psalm chapter 22, we see not just a general, but a very specific, detailed description of the sufferings, the crucifixion of Christ. Certainly, David wrote this psalm, and David personally experienced many things that caused him to write this psalm. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God moves David to write things that sound as if David was standing at the foot of the cross, standing there describing the crucifixion, a form of execution that had not even been invented when David wrote a thousand years before the events took place. Yet David describes the sufferings of our Savior in a very detailed way, as if he had been standing there that day. You remember Psalm 22 begins saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some critics would say, well, look, yes, Jesus says that on the cross, but he memorized Psalm 22. He could fulfill that prophecy on his own. But remember that Psalm 22 also predicts, it tells how the guards would gamble for the clothing of our Lord. You mean to tell me that Roman pagan guards would work to fulfill prophecy of Scripture? I don't think so. A thousand years before the events took place, God worked through the Holy Spirit in the author David to write Psalm 22, giving us a picture of the crucifixion, a picture of the suffering of our Lord. Isaiah chapter 53, we read that at the beginning of our study just a few weeks ago. We remember the suffering servant of the Lord, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds, the wounds of this Messiah, the wounds of this suffering Savior. That is how we are healed. The Old Testament is replete with these examples, the prophecies of the suffering of our Lord. And we're familiar with some of those. But, but what about the predictions of his glory? Is that also in the Old Testament? Well, yes, it is. Do you remember what I told you just a few weeks ago was the most often quoted verse from the Old Testament that the, the New Testament authors quoted most often throughout the New Testament? It is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's a foreshadowing of the day when Christ will reign in glory. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will put all things under his feet. All enemies will be destroyed. All of sin, all of death, all of it will be vanquished. It was told about all the way back in Psalm 110. What about Isaiah chapter 40 verses 9 through 11? The prophet Isaiah said this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. 
Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. All the way back 750 years before the coming of Christ, Isaiah the prophet predicted, he prophesied, he told about the day when Christ will return. He will make all things new. He will be king of kings, lord of lords, gently leading his people. One more uh, example for you, a very familiar verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. The famous prophecy that we normally think of at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And on the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, this prophecy in Isaiah 9 is a perfect example of what I call the mountain peak views of prophecy. Some of you have traveled uh, to the mountains before. Some of you may be headed to the mountains this summer. And as you're traveling from a distance, you see something far off and you think, oh my goodness, that is the biggest mountain I have ever seen. It's just one mountain and it is enormous. But as you continue driving, you get a little bit closer and you see, well, there's actually two mountains. I see there's two mountains, but they look like they're just right next to each other. You couldn't drive a car through them. But the closer you get and the closer you get, you realize there are actually miles and miles and cities between these two mountains. It's the same way with biblical prophecy. Sometimes the prophets of the Old Testament, they looked ahead. God gave them a glimpse of what was coming in the future. And they could not see any space between his first coming and his second coming. You see that here in this prophecy, the beginning of the verse, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We see that at Christ's first coming. But everything else in that passage has not yet taken place. We see that upon his second coming, when he will be the Prince of Peace and when he will set all things right. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish all of this, but it hasn't taken place yet. It's the mountain peak views of prophecy. There's actually a great deal of space between these events, but we don't always recognize that. The prophets did not always recognize that. As they were looking at what the Holy Spirit had given them, they often thought this must all take place at the same time. And that helps us understand why so many during Jesus' earthly ministry said, Lord, why are you not setting the kingdom in place now? They believed that Messiah had come and they thought that meant he must restore the kingdom to Israel right then. We see that in Acts chapter 1 when we looked at the ascension. The disciples asked Jesus this very thing. Will you now at this time restore the kingdom? And he told them it is not for you to know times and seasons. This is all because of what we call the mountain peak view of prophecy. The disciples didn't understand this. They didn't understand that Christ would come first in suffering, in service, in humility. The Son of Man has come to save and give his life a ransom for many. But then he will come again. He will come again in glory. The disciples wanted the glory, but they did not want the suffering. 
You see them bickering on the road to Jerusalem as Jesus is making his way to his crucifixion. They are arguing about the silliest of things because they don't understand what he is about to endure. He tells them, but they still don't understand. And often we don't either. Peter's message to us this morning is to never forget that the road to glory is paved with suffering. The road to glory is paved with sufferings. The suffering of this life are to be expected because our Savior also suffered. But just as sure as he entered into his glory, as he was resurrected, as he ascended into heaven, and as he sits at the right hand of the Father, we know that one day he will return and put all things under his feet. Just as sure as he entered into his glory, we too can be sure that one day we will enter into our glory with him as well. So the prophets wanted to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was testifying to. They sought the Lord, but what is their answer? What do we see here? Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. God revealed to them, he unveiled to them that they were not actually serving themselves. As much as they fervently wanted to understand these prophecies, they wanted to understand these things for themselves, they were serving not themselves, but you. And me. What an amazing thought. Yes, Moses served God and Moses served God's people. But in some sense, perhaps greater than we can understand, Moses also served us. Yes, Isaiah recorded these prophecies for his own day, and we see some initial fulfillment even in Isaiah's day. But the New Testament is clear that these things actually were written down for our benefit, that they were serving us. As strange as it may sound, Paul also tells us the same thing. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them, talking about the saints of the Old Testament, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. What a marvelous thought. The prophets of old were actually serving Peter's original audience, those elect exiles of the dispersion, and us. All New Testament Christians were being served by these Old Testament prophets. Now the word for serve is the same word that we get our word deacon from. As you probably know, deacon or diakonos just simply means a servant or a table waiter. Don't miss this. The prophets of old were waiting tables for us. They were serving us the rich meat of God's word. Remember that Peter is writing to those elect exiles, those who feel like outsiders. But Peter tells us that actually those Old Testament prophets, they're the outsiders. They're the ones on the outside looking in, trying to understand these prophecies. But we understand more than those prophets ever did. Can you imagine that? Pause and wrap your mind around that for a moment. Sometimes we think, I wish I could have seen what Isaiah saw. I wish I could have seen what Zechariah saw. But God tells us in his word that we have a more sure word. We have a more certain word. This is the glorious truth of those prophets who prophesied. But how did we receive these prophecies? We keep going in verse 12. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have been now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. We have received this glorious truth. We have received the truth of the gospel because it was preached to us. How will they hear without someone preaching? Peter demonstrated this on the day of Pentecost when he preached that Christ was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. The apostles were the first generation of these gospel preachers, and every gospel preacher since then is still perpetually proclaiming the faithful gospel of Jesus Christ that we first heard of in the prophets of the Old Testament. But don't miss this. What empowered Peter's preaching at Pentecost? What empowers the faithful preaching of God's word in this generation, in every generation? It is by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, right there toward the end of verse 12. But one final thing that we have to see in verse 12. What is the last phrase? Things into which angels long to look. The word for long here means a deep, deep desire. It's usually used in the Bible in a, in a negative sense. It's usually translated lust. But of course, we know that what God is describing about the angels here is not a negative thing. It's not a sinful thing. It's the idea that they're looking into this salvation, but it's not a passing glance. We've seen these words actually in Luke 24 back at Easter when we saw how Peter and John ran to the tomb. And when Peter got there, he stooped and he bent down and he looked and he took a long, hard look in that empty tomb, wanting to understand exactly what he was seeing. You see, the angels long to look into, to deeply understand the glorious reality of our salvation. Why is that? Can they not comprehend? Well, of course they can comprehend. Even the demons can comprehend. They understand what the Bible says. But God's holy angels cannot experience salvation in the way that we can. They understand academically, but they do not understand experientially. This is why the Bible tells us that the angels rejoice when even one sinner comes to Christ. You see, the angels are spectators. They're not participants. We see this pictured out even in the furnishings of the Old Testament. When you look at the, the mercy seat in the, described in the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament, you see the cherubim, two angels seated above the mercy seat, and they're looking down, pondering this glorious reality of atonement. Full atonement, how can it be? The angels long to look into this. They understand it, but they can't experience it. So what is Peter's message to us? Today, Well, first, I hope we can all begin to get just a glimpse of how wonderful our salvation is. No matter how long you've walked with Christ, how many decades you've trusted Christ, I pray that the reality of your salvation is more dear, more marvelous today than it's ever been before. The prophets made it their life's ambition to understand our salvation. They were consumed by it. The prophets prophesied it. The preachers proclaimed it, the Holy Spirit inspired it, and the angels long to look into it. They long to experience salvation. The angels will never experience salvation, but you can. 
If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've never come to Christ in repentance and faith, trusting that Christ is the only one who can take away your sins. He's the only one who can make peace between you and a holy God. Then I would plead with you, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ today. You've heard how our great God has prepared this rich salvation, and it is available to you and to you and to everyone here apart from Christ. But brothers and sisters, If the prophets were so consumed by the reality of our salvation, if they were so consumed by the news of the coming Messiah, then how can we treat what they had to say so flippantly? How can we spend so little time trying to understand the prophets of the Old Testament, the Old Testament as a whole, as we understand that it is pointing to Christ? If we understand that, that all Scripture points to Christ, And that the prophets were serving as table waiters, bringing us the meat of the word of God. Should we not be at least as excited as they were about God's word? Will you commit today to digging deeper into God's word, seeing what a glorious, marvelous salvation that our Savior has provided? And if the angels rejoice so greatly over something they will never, ever experience, how can we neglect so great a salvation As the author of Hebrews tells us, do you get tired of hearing about the gospel? Do you get bored with your salvation? Peter is telling us that we live in the greatest time possible because we have God's completed word. We have all of God's promises. We have God's spirit indwelling within us. No matter what trials we endure, though necessary, for a little while in this life, Christ stands ready with his gospel to save us and to sustain us through this life. We don't graduate from the gospel. We don't move on from the gospel. Corporately, we shape our worship around the gospel. Individually, we shape our lives around the gospel. We need these reminders each and every day, even as we're about to sing, we need them hourly. We need to be reminded that Christ has saved us and what a glorious salvation he has given us. Let's bow now in response to him.